hello hello welcome back to leadership hope you're all safe and healthy and enjoying this beginning of the holiday season as you all know I recently did my first ever non-interview episode last month and I'm so thankful to all of you for listening and being so encouraging and sending your feedback and I decided to do another one and this time instead of focusing on a research article I'm focusing on the most recent book that I read on maternal death. So the book came out earlier this year, and it's called Partial Stories, Maternal Death from Six Angles. And it was written by Dr. Claire Wenland, who is trained as both an OB-GYN medical doctor and an anthropologist. And she spent decades and decades researching in various cities in Malawi in Africa. And I really think that her perspective as both a medical doctor and a trained anthropologist really gives her an edge in communicating the intersection of medicine and culture in the public health space. And I think it's actually one of my favorite books that I've read in, in recent years. And so I'm really excited to tell you about it and what I've learned from it. So a quick side note before we get started is all of the feedback last time was that I should say more. Um, someone said that it felt like they were on FaceTime with me. And that's actually exactly the vibe that I'm going for. So as long as you guys are finding this interesting, I won't try and keep it under 20 minutes this time. And I'll just keep going for as long as I can or as, as I have things to say. And there's a lot to say about this book. So as always, let me know what you're thinking and let's just get into it. I'm really excited about this one. So the really interesting thing about this book is the way that Dr. Wenlin addresses the six angles that she considers as explanations for maternal death, because to me at least, maternal death is really an unexplainable thing. Just in that birth and motherhood are supposed to bring about life, not end it, and with the six factors that she analyzes and talks about, she doesn't claim that any of them are the correct one or that any of them are all-encompassing in any way. And I find that really important and a really central idea in public health work. I think that assuming that you found the explanation can cause a lot of overconfidence in potential solutions. Usually a solution would be some sort of biomedical treatment program. And that biomedical treatment program probably doesn't make enough systemic change to do its job correctly. So with that in mind, let's get into what I learned from this book. Dr. Wenland approaches her explanations of these six factors with mainly ethnographic interviews and medical case studies, and then she'll add context from her experiences and her time spent in the hospitals. And it all really wraps together in a way that tells a story, but also provides a lot of concrete reasoning and analysis, which I find really digestible, but also just like really riveting. And that might be just me, me, but I thought it was a really great read and I would highly recommend. So the first factor is what she calls dangerous modernities. And it's actually a concept that touches on what I talked about with Dr. Boyd a few weeks ago about culture and the kind of clashes in 
cultural change and cultural interpretations with and and like how that interacts with biomedicine. So the influence of modern culture and its potential clashes with old customs could be potentially correlated with recent increases in maternal mortality. And this was found in a lot of her interviews, which indicated that some people blamed older customs and some people blamed modern customs for maternal death. And I found this line of thought like pretty intriguing because generally it seemed that traditional healers found modern changes in culture, such as riskier sexual behavior and ideas about female liberation and sexuality as causing women to have more dangerous pregnancies. But on the other hand, interviewees such as biomedical doctors and nurses working in the hospitals tended to see a lack of modernity as an important contributor to maternal death, where not enough change was made and not enough infrastructure was there for effective biomedical practice and safe pregnancy. So regardless of who is more correct, though, it's clear that the partial nature of these changes, such as female liberation without cultural shifts about sexual practice and without the implementation of sex ed or promotion of safe sexual um, experiences and practices, or the implementation of biomedicines as mutually exclusive with traditional medicine and without any improved infrastructure to resource new hospitals or make medicine affordable. So that left me wondering, is modernity dangerous because there's too much of it or too little of it? How do we find a balance? What kind of policies would be effective to make sure we can implement modern changes in medicine in a way that's actually effective? And honestly, who might even have an opinion on that because I'm not even a participant in Malawian culture and I lack the understanding to say either way but I would still love to hear what you guys think because it was a point that I'd never considered in discussions about what's causing maternal mortality, what, why are the rates on the rise, and why are they disproportional around the world. But thinking about modern culture and ideas about whether modernity is dangerous um, are a really interesting thing to consider and something that I really hadn't heard much of before. So that was a really good one, really interesting one for me. And I'm realizing now that I could probably spend a whole episode just talking about one factor, but I'm really hoping to touch on all of them because they were all so interesting. So I'm going to keep moving along. And if any of them really spark your interest, just let me know and maybe I'll just do a whole episode on that one. All right. The next explanation or factor that Dr. Wenlin talks about are the more biophysical factors that cause maternal death. So I guess the more medical health related specificities that would affect a woman's experience giving birth or with her pregnancy. And Dr. Wenlin walks through a lot of really interesting and, in my opinion, unsatisfying medical case studies. I say unsatisfying because they're so bare bones and so partial. Again, hence the title Partial Stories. I thought that was that was a really good example of a partial story through all of her case studies. But they offers so much information, but there's also basically no detail. So when the doctors sit and go through the case and try to determine the cause of death, it just keeps showing how uncertain all of it is. They blame deaths on sepsis or they blame them on malnutrition. 
or they say that since a woman had anemia, this led to other situations in her treatment plan that eventually led to her to die. So there are so many other reasons that can contribute, or let me say, there are so many other reasons that contribute but can only be theorized as reasons, and it's really difficult for people to be absolutely sure. And on the one hand, it really gets me excited about medical problem solving, but it just leaves so much ambiguity there that a lot of the medical workers who she talks with just have to be used to and have to accept. So I mentioned things like sepsis, but the most commonly discussed issue in this section affecting the more biological experiences surrounding maternal death was women's sexual networks. Relating back to that idea of modernity and liberation, but also in a really interesting relation to post-colonialism, because sex became a tool for a lot of women and a means for making money in a post-colonial economy. And accordingly, then, untreated sexually transmitted infections began to spread and cause a lot of long-lasting impacts on health. And they existed in that same post-colonial health infrastructure that wasn't ready to address them. So then, so far we have physical factors like rates of anemia or sepsis caused by something like unclean surgical tools used during birth, but we also have cultural factors like the advent of modern ideas and socioeconomic factors caused by the legacy of colonialism, which all shape the way that women in Malawi experience pregnancy and birth. So that makes me think, what could be next? Well, she walks through four more things. All right. Next, we learned about medical technology. And to be clear first, there's often a really binary way of thinking about medical tech that as long as technologies exist, physicians can always make positive impacts on patient outcomes. And given that the way that health professionals make decisions about what tools to use in a given scenario is really, really heavily dependent on the context. There's a lot to say here, and Dr. Wenland does a really good job of breaking it down. So she first makes a really clear distinction between tools that are available and are used properly versus tools that are unused or misused or absent completely. And in her other works, um, she's discussed technological orientations within the overall culture of biomedicine such that the availability of a technology indicates that doctors are actually more encouraged to use it. And to back up for a second, doctors hold a pretty unique level of authority over the human body. Like, it's really crazy to think about. So then, since doctors are so quick to use medical technology, as they should for the most part, but that technology also then has a lot of authority over the human body. So, Dr. Wenland discusses how technology is seen as integral to medical practice, and doctors are very quick to use technological interventions to treat patients, even if it may not be necessary. Uh, it's kind of a default or even a crutch at times, such that the availability of technology could even lead to its use in situations where it's not necessarily needed. 
Dr. Wenlin talks about scenarios where this occurs, as well as scenarios where the technology that could have been essential was simply not available. If it was absent or unused due to factors such as its condition, its need for repairs, its lack of ability, that's one problem. But another problem is misusing technology. For example, if there are a limited number of one-time use syringes, disposable syringes maybe, that are available to perform a procedure, they might get reused even if they weren't intended to be, which can be really dangerous just due to the nature of there's always more patients to care for. And if there is a syringe, why not use it? You know, so the absence and misuse of technology is really, really central to causes of maternal death, as Dr. Wenlin shows, because, for example, not having resources for a C-section can be really deadly, but so can using unsterile materials in the surgery, because that may be all that's available. So the ways that providers make decisions is really fascinating because it's the kind of decision where it's hard to pinpoint a right way forward. And Dr. Wenlin spends a while talking about a specific case of obstructed labor and the various pathways that the care team considered given their resources. She talks about procedures like pelvimetry and partographs and tools like partographs actually, and all these technological interventions that made me run to Google. I probably pronounced them wrong, but I did nerd out for a bit over them because they're really, really essential and important, but maybe aren't always the right solution given the context of the situation. So the overall takeaway here for me was, I think, best summed up by the term ambivalence, because medical technologies are shown to be ambivalent in their power to both help and harm. And it really depends on whether facilities are equipped to use tools for their intended purpose, or if they're forced to make do with what they have. And this is such an important understanding to have when we're making public health policies surrounding new technological advancements, because we need to make sure that they're used in a way that's actually helpful to women giving birth and mothers. So now that we've used technology to introduce the idea of absence of resources, we can discuss the fourth factor that Wenlin analyzes, which she calls abundant scarcity. We've understood the idea of a lack of resources for a while now, but Wenlin does a really great job here of really diving into the implications and effects of scarcity. I remember when I was reading that one nurse summarizes her job as a constant making do with less. Not enough equipment, not enough staff, not enough beds. So many factors contribute to the quality of healthcare and health outcomes that mothers receive. And water and blood banks were the most prominent scarcities that were mentioned but they also tied into other barriers to healthcare provision. And Dr. Wenlin talks a lot about scarcity through an anthropological lens and refers to definitions and works by other anthropologists. And I really just don't have the training to explain all of that. But I did find it really eye-opening to consider the ways that absence and uncertainty and even substitution get completely normalized in medical practice. One thing that really stuck out to me was that a lot of women are given lists of materials to bring to the hospital in order to create a safer birthing experience for themselves. And this list includes things like soap or a clean razor, 
and a piece of string and gloves, uh, all really basic things that the hospital may not be able to provide for every patient. And so I did a bit of research and I found that the UNFPA still asks for donations to provide kits with these materials for hospitals. And that's great, but here's the issue. Pushing for birth kits is reactionary and it reduces the problem to simply a lack of supplies and steers attention away from the underlying root causes of the issue. So instead of making structural changes and the WHO creating an initiative to improve infrastructure in these hospitals, the UN agencies are providing targeted vertical aid. And if you've ever taken a public health class, you know what I'm saying. Uh, preventative solutions that address underlying causes are so important. And reactionary programming like this only perpetuates the problem of scarcity by putting a Band-Aid over it. So that one got me. Um, but the other highlight of this section for me was Dr. Wenland's discussion of the ethical implications of medical research being an avenue of medical care. So let's think for a second about what makes a credible clinical research study. You have some kind of intervention that you're testing, and if you're trying to prove that it has some effect on health, then you test it in comparison to a control group. And this most often occurs through placebo medication and double-blind studies where neither the researchers nor the patients know whether or not they're receiving the medication or the placebo. Well, <laughs> lots of people, especially those who are poor or disadvantaged, sign up to do these studies because of the chance of free care or just care. <laughs> How do you defend the ethics of withholding treatment from a sick person in the name of good research results, especially if you have the capacity to treat them? It's a really controversial thing, and Dr. Wenlin discusses this for a while, but when we think about scarcity and combine it with the conditional nature of medical research studies, where they'll only provide care in the name of research results, it becomes kind of mind-boggling. Like, imagine a mother who can't receive a medication before she labors in a trial that she signed up for because she happened to be in the placebo group. And a lot of times they're testing the efficacy of existing drugs, not whether or not a novel drug has any kind of impact. So usually they know that some level of medication would have a positive impact, but they're trying to compare results of like varying levels or they need a control group in addition to their varying levels. So there must be people who don't have any medication given to them, even though they already know that it would be helpful to that patient. So it's pretty insane to think about. So that's big issue number two from this section. And Dr. Wenland sums it up really nicely by saying that maternal mortality is often produced, quote, passively as, quote, a product of actions not taken. And I think that addresses both points of reactionary rather than preventative programming and the intentional withholding of care that occurs in research studies. And Again, these were concepts that I had never applied to thinking about maternal mortality specifically, but they're just so essential to healthcare delivery that they clearly have a very wide-ranging impact. So I really enjoyed that section. So the last two factors that Dr. Wenlin goes into are more policy and economics oriented, and they discuss the study of health through much more quantitative lenses, such as biostatistics and epidemiology, 
and they also dive into the role of politics and government agencies in maternal health. So she talks a lot about the obscurity of statistics about maternal health and how decisions are made in representing data about maternal death. And the data is often presenting a very specific narrative that shapes widespread understandings about what specific technologies were used and how quickly they died and and things like that that create a narrative and make it really difficult to ensure data quality. We talked earlier about the ambiguity in causes of death and other forms of ambiguity that are bound to occur in a hospital setting where there are always more pressing priorities than charting or recording the details of a case as accurately as possible. And a lot of the time you just don't really know for sure why a case played out the way it did. So Dr. Wenlin analyzes specifically the method of verbal autopsy, which is how they went through the cases post-death. Um, and so this, this method is used by doctors. And then she also discusses the population equations that the UN uses to measure these kind of outcomes and these huge ideas, such as maternal mortality. And a lot of information is simply left out as we've heard and, and discussed, it's really difficult to generalize such unclear, ambiguous, and wide-ranging information about people. So there's also just a huge lack of accountability there because it's not reliable and there's no one making sure that it is because it's a really difficult thing to do. And from there, it's important to recognize that the policy we make is created based on evidence from this data. So there's clearly a lot to consider in the ways we're collecting data and the ways that we're informing our policies. So those are the kind of a summary of the last two factors. And I think I want to talk now about the ending of the book. Um, after a lot of really thought-provoking analysis and honestly pretty discouraging subject matter, Dr. Wenland finishes the book in a way that actually brought me to tears the first time I read it. She tells the story of leaving the hospital one day and seeing a woman who did not make it inside the hospital before giving birth to her child. And she's described as being surrounded by a crowd of women who are holding up their dresses and supporting her and shielding her from the public eye and a single nurse who's helping her. And the nurse indicates to Dr. Wendland that everything's okay. And so Dr. Wendland walks away. And it was a really beautiful end to the book, I thought, and a good reminder that despite all of the intense and unsettling contributors to maternal death and the unexplainable nature of maternal death that the book has discussed, there are still healthy, joyful, and successful births happening despite it all. And that brings me to the end of the book. I just listed a ton of factors that contribute to the rates of maternal mortality in Malawi. And so why does it matter? I think it's important to point out the public health implications of everything I've talked about, such as the tendency to put responsibility on women themselves or on individual health providers or hospitals instead of the larger public health systems at play. And I also think it's very important to consider culture as a huge factor in health. But I think the lasting point that I found most relevant and it's relevant to the title of the book too, is that all of these stories and reasons for death are partial. There's no single explanation for this unexplainable phenomenon of maternal death. 
And I read an interview that Dr. Wenlin gave about the book, and she talked about the double meaning of her title. So first, the stories are partial because they're incomplete. We don't know every detail contributing to each medical case or each healthcare worker's involvement, and we don't always know the full story of why the cases turned out the way they did. But there's another reason that she chose the word partial, and it's because it's impossible to be impartial when learning about these issues and working in health. We all have some stake in these stories because we all care in some regard about the issues contributing to these health outcomes. So we are all partial to these stories. And I'll end with that. Once again, the book is called Partial Stories, Maternal Death from Six Angles by Dr. Claire Wenland. And to anyone looking to learn more, I'd recommend any of Dr. Wenland's work on maternal morbidity and mortality. Let me know what you think. And with that, happy holidays, stay safe, and I will see you next time. Thank you.